I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys react to news that the WTO Director General is resigning a year early. Plus, we'll break down the latest in the U.S.-China relationship, including a new bill that could kick Chinese companies off the U.S. stock exchange and how China's crackdown in Hong Kong may imperil trade. And we'll discuss flaring tempers between Australia and China and why it matters for the United States. All that and much, much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, the head of the WTO, Brazilian Director General Roberto Azevedo, surprised the WTO's 164 members last week by announcing that he would quit at the end of August. That's a year earlier than expected. And so he's adding to the tumult here facing global agencies and indeed a backlash against globalization. What's happening here and what do we see in the future of the WTO? This is a big deal, right? It is a big deal. I frankly don't have a lot of sympathy for him. I think that he did the wrong thing. But what he said was good motivation, which is that the ministerial conference that was supposed to be next month has been postponed also till next year. And he thought it would be a distraction to have a leadership succession contest going on at the same time as a ministerial, which sort of makes sense. But what it does then is, is give the WTO an enormous new problem right now on a very truncated schedule. You know, the rules they set up for selecting a new leader created a nine-month process, and he's forced them to stuff that into three months. And I, can, I just had a conversation earlier this week with, with somebody who was one of the key actors the last time this happened, which was 2013. He was one of the three committee chairs that was responsible for interviewing ambassadors about the candidates. There were nine candidates. He said they conducted 473 interviews. Now, if they have to do that again in three months, that's going to be gruesome. Wait a minute. They conducted 473 interviews for the director job? Yes. The, the way you do it, there's not a vote. It has to be consensus. And so the way they do it is they take the, the three ambassadors that chair the big committees in the WTO, the general counsel, which is everybody, the dispute resolution council, and another one. And they go around and talk to all 164 ambassadors and ask them, who do you want? And then the second question is, so who can you live with? They discourage them from vetoing anybody. They discourage them from saying, we can't live with this one. They don't like red lines. But they go through this, and it's a winnowing process. You know, they'll say there's, there may not, I don't, who knows, it, the nominations don't start until June 8th, so we don't know how many there will be. Last time there were nine, and they say, who do you like? And based on all of those interviews, 164 the first time, they come out and say, here are, in that case, here are the five that are most likely to obtain unanimity or consensus. So they threw four under the bus, and then they did it again one more time, and they came out and said, here are the two that are most likely to achieve consensus, and they threw the other three under the bus, and then they did it again. That's why there were 473 interviews. And at the end said, this is the one that we think is most likely to achieve consensus. And it was Azevedo. And it did. Nobody objected. It's a yes. painful process for the three of them. Right. Welcome to the wonderful world of the WTO. 
which <laughs> which seems to be an international organization, but it's actually just a table. Okay, everything in the WTO is negotiated. It's bargained by the members. All right, and one of the things that's always happened at the WTO is they've always resisted a vote. So it's the one it's the one international organization that never really votes on anything. They try to operate. In fact, they have operated thus far totally by consensus. Now it takes forever. It's a very painful process and it's a very subtle process. But it is it's unlike any other international institution. You could find a president of the World Bank. The president of the World Bank's a big job, but it's fairly straightforward how that selection process works and what the president does. So we all not only have a, a very hairy selection process at the WTO, which requires intense consultation and no voting, and all members are basically considered equal in this in this deal. Plus, the job itself is extraordinarily difficult because of those practices of uh, sort of consensus based action. Scott, why is the job so important? The director general job? Well, look, the World Trade Organization continues to be important as uh, an organization that has recently lost its its mojo. It's lost its ability to reach broad based or broad scale multilateral agreements on much of anything. But the fact is, it remains the one set of rules by which all its members abide, which smooths world trade, which makes everything we do predictable. Absent the WTO and its rules, uh, international trade would be Calvin Ball. If you remember Calvin and Hobbes, the game Calvin Ball was invented. <laughs> and the thing about Calvin Ball is the rules change every time, okay? Right. Which is great if you're a six-year-old boy, okay? And terrible if you're, uh, if you're a commercial operation. You want predictable rules. So the WTO helps you avoid Calvin Ball. Its leader, it matters because you've got to be able to modernize, improve, but it is a tough job. So you do have an organization to manage. There's this thing called a secretariat, uh, but it's uh, manage. It's the management required to get members to agree. That is the, the challenge. It's a terrible job, but I will bet you there's quite a number of people that want it. One constraining factor is you don't just toss your hat in the ring. You have to be nominated by a government. Now, it turns out you don't have to be nominated by your government. I didn't realize that. You can be nominated by anybody's government. Huh. So the United States, if it wanted to, could nominate a Canadian or an Australian or somebody else. Or Andrew. They could nominate I'll Andrew. I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, is, Don't as be long, sorry. As long as I can do it from home. The office has a great view of Lake Geneva, but otherwise yeah. I, I, I would counsel you against taking the job. I mean, and right now, <laughs> as long as I can do it from home, it's all good. Um, Bill, I see, I see you managed to find a barber. I just did a little trim around the side. I've not had the, and there's less and less on top, so it really doesn't matter. I think you did a spectacular job. Well, it shows up here. Thank you. The thing that's frustrating is that if you, fortunately, this is an audio thing only, but yeah. if, if you if you look at the, because of the camera angle it make, and my receding forehead, it makes it look like I'm completely bald on top, which we all know I am not. That is, you are not. Yeah. It is Scott and I that are challenged on top. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and my wife has has found the uh, the belt sander with the uh, diamond tip on uh, yeah. density on it. She's she's uh, polished me up a number of times since the well. Uh, lockdown for started. for those of you who haven't seen me lately, I have a lot of hair on the sides and in the back, and so I'm growing sort of like a a, a San Francisco style ponytail on the back. And my wife threatened to uh, cut it all off 
this morning and I said, no, 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 no. We're going to have to find, uh, we're going to have to get our barber to come over one of these days and do like a social distancing cut for me and all the boys out back. So we'll see if that actually happens. Yeah, you've but... got that assistant professor mullet going on there. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Pretty amazing. <laughs> Best will come when you wake up one morning and you discover she's taken a rubber band and tied all of it into yeah. a ponytail. Exactly, exactly. All right, so do you guys expect a long, drawn-out fight over this new selection of a new DG? I think it's too soon to say. The early candidates are a mixed bag. There are already two arguments being made that are contrary to each other, which suggests there's going to be trouble. The Africans say it's their turn, and every time there's a selection process, there's always issues of gender and geography and status. And one argument, of course, is there's never been a woman director general, so it's time. There has never been an African, so it's time. There's also never been a North American or an Australian or anybody from the Middle East, but the Africans make the most noise and they have the most countries. And so they're making that argument. The developed countries have made the point that it has become a quasi-tradition to alternate developed and developing leaders. Uh, Azevedo was from Brazil, a developing country. His predecessor, Pascal Lamy, was from France. So that argument is it's time for somebody from a developed country. So that means the perfect candidate, you know, would be an African woman from a developed, a developed African country. Uh, that's a small pool, uh, probably zero. But it does suggest there will be a lot of friction about this. There will also be, I think, the, the more important debate that will be uh, maybe articulated, will be over what kind of person do you want, uh, which is actually the right question. <laughs> and that relates then to what kind of organization do you want. There's a lot of countries who will say, this is a member-driven organization and it needs to stay that way. It goes back to what Scott said. It's a consensus-driven organization. The members decide what's happening. Uh, the leader's job is to convene and cajole and try to build consensus. There are other countries who would argue, we need somebody who will be a little bit more aggressive forming the consensus. He has to do more than just perceive if one exists. He needs to twist the occasional arm to try to get there. There needs to be a stronger leadership at the top. Acevedo has been in the first mold. He's been a consensus seeker rather than a arm twister. Lamy was arguably more in the latter mold. I think a lot of people would say he wasn't all that successful at it. But, you know, he took a different approach. I think that will underlie some of the debate here. There will be different candidates. And it'll be interesting to see how the countries break out. The EU is very much in the, I think, second mold. They want a stronger WTO. They want a rule maker. Uh, the U.S. these days is, I think, much more in the first mode. They want an organization where countries are sovereign and can pretty much do what they want. And Scott, do you think that's a fair uh, uh, description? Yeah, I think you've summarized it well. But uh, if I could take a moment and channel my cynical business guy, um, I would say that looking back at the history of WTO director generals, it's hard to find. There have been a lot of different types of people. Michael Moore, the man from Indonesia, Subramanian or Superchai, I forget the name, but it's Southeast Asia. Uh, we've had uh, Pascal Lamy, who was, you know, your basic, your basic French a French socialist. I mean, we've had everything and none of them have gotten much done. You know, Mike Moore, former prime minister of New Zealand, 
given the range of talented people who have had that job and the lack of results, to lack of anything to show for all that time in office, I'm not sure until the members decide they're ready to do something, uh, what difference the leader makes. But you're saying it really doesn't matter who they pick? I'm just saying it's hard to look back at the last 20 years and see, pick a leadership style that has made a particular difference. It's a tough choice. I mean, and, and I, I fully admit it's a tough job. It's a really difficult job. And you need the trust of, uh, of a, a lot of the members, if not a consensus of members. And it's hard to maintain that trust and, and make things happen. For what it's worth, I'm hopeful that uh, in our own think tank way, we're going to get involved in the process and see if we can work with American stakeholders, which really means the business community, among others, to help them get more information about the various candidates when there are some. And then uh, they will probably pass their views on to our administration because the United States gets to have an opinion just like everybody else. Sure. Uh, And the opinion carries some weight, usually. Sometimes it's negative weight. There are countries that if they know the U.S. is for somebody, they'll be against them. But uh, the United States in the past has been effective often behind the scenes, and I imagine we'll do so again. Ambassador Lighthizer did put out a statement when Azevedo made his announcement, wishing him well, but saying the United States would participate in the selection process. So the people thought that thought we would walk away uh, from it were wrong. So I guess we're going to play the game. Well, we'll have to see. Another thing that we'll have to see about is there is a bill uh, that just passed the Senate last week on China. And this is a bipartisan bill. It's Senator Chris Van Hollen, Democrat from Maryland, and Senator John Kennedy, uh, Republican from Louisiana, that introduced this and co-sponsored it, that calls for regulation of all Chinese companies that are listed on the New York Stock Exchanges. This bill is going to now go to the House. It's expected to pass the House. Why is this significant, guys? First, it's not a new issue. This has been going on for at least 10 if not 15 years. And the regulation isn't new. Uh, If you're listed, you're supposed to be subject to audit. And the SEC is supposed to be able to audit. And independent auditors are supposed to be, uh, are supposed to audit. If you're listed, you have to give the auditors access to your internal documents so they can conduct their audit. It's not a new requirement. It's a requirement that Chinese companies have not adhered to And it's a requirement that the Chinese government has forbidden its companies to adhere to on sovereignty grounds. They've told their they've ordered their companies not to cooperate uh, with auditors because they view that as an infringement on Chinese sovereignty. So you've got, I think, upwards of 200 listed companies that are out of compliance with SEC rules and out of compliance with stock exchange rules. Uh, I mean, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the the Chinese position on this. Everybody else adheres to these rules, and they've uh, they've not. There was a negotiation, I think, what, five, eight years ago? Yes. uh, That uh, I thought was going to solve the problem, but it obviously didn't. And now the Senate has lost patience, and I suspect the House will lose patience, too. Yeah, look, this has been, as Bill points out, an ongoing saga. And there are obviously risks involved with any investment. And uh, the the point of securities regulation is to make sure there is as much transparency as possible. Now, certainly, uh, China has benefited from access to the very deep and liquid capital markets in the United States. This has helped their companies. Uh, and uh, there's a re- there are reasons you want to be listed on New York exchanges. 
Uh, but at the same time, the investors, even even though they are they are acknowledging they're taking risk, they want to be tr- have transparency about those risks. I would note that there is a recent example. In fact, during during our period of broadcasts from the bunkers, uh, a Chinese uh, coffee retailer, essentially a competitor of Starbucks, called Look and Coffee, which was had long been listed on the New York Stock Exchange, traded about fifty dollars a share in January. That and uh, too, right? The Nas- yeah, they said Nasdaq suspended trading uh, April seventh at about two dollars a share. Yeah, uh, but the trading is still suspended because of accounting irregularities. All right. Now, that's what the SEC rules are designed to forestall or prevent. Now, cheating is not unique to look, look and coffee or the or or the Chinese. But you do try to apply these rules in a way that gives investors some sense of that, that they are they, they can fully understand the, the risks they're taking. We're talking about about 200 Chinese companies. Some are state-owned, some are not, um, with a total market value of about $1.4 trillion. They've never given U.S. regulators access to their audit records, and they've all claimed that it would be an infringement on Chinese national security, or what? What what are their other excuses? It's a sovereignty argument. It intrudes on on the Chinese government's sovereignty. Presumably, they think they, these records should be made ex- available to the Chinese government, but not to anybody else. Yeah, but OK, so but who told them that they could come and be on our stock exchange without following our rules? Well, that's the point is like if you want this to be domestic regulation if for China only, then raise your capital in China. Have a nice day. Yeah. OK, if you want U.S. investors and all that. All that goes with that. Yeah, everything goes with it. Then you've got to follow our rules. Well, let me ask it another way. Scott, I've heard you, you know, refer to this as this is more conceptual decoupling. Right. It is not breaking up supply chains. It's not putting trade barriers in place. But what it is doing is using the requirements of our own system to make a sharper distinction between firms that practice the rule of law the way we understand it and those that don't. And if they're Chinese firms that fall outside that, well, that that does tended to couple. And so it's not so much reshoring or breaking up supply chains or, or or having tariff man put tariffs on Chinese goods. But it is U.S. capital markets are quite valuable to uh, to private companies. They, lo- they like to be able to access them. So what do you guys think happens next with this? This becomes law. And then what happens? I'm kind of a hardliner on this. I think it passes. Uh, I think we enforce it. And I think the companies either pull themselves out voluntarily or they're delisted. And they end up uh, on the Shanghai Exchange or the Hong Kong Exchange or, or the Nikkei. And uh, I think the Chinese government probably uh, will at least tell itself that they're big enough and important enough that these companies can survive outside of New York. The interesting thing for me will be to watch what London and Tokyo do, because those are, are two capital markets outside of China's control and all, but also independent of the U.S. and they make their own decisions on listings. So if Alibaba leaves its U.S. listing as a result of this, and it's already since this bill passed last week in the Senate, it's already dropped 8 percent Alibaba. So if Alibaba leaves the U.S., it's likely to go get listed or try to get listed in, in the U.K. or in Tokyo. And then and then what happens? Well, look, their, their equity and debt requirements are not going to change because of this. What what changes is the number of investors that can participate 
in an equity or a debt investment. So the U.S. investors will not be able to buy those stocks or bonds on a U.S. exchange. So it doesn't really change the company's own capital needs as much as it changes their access to the pool. They would be able to buy them on other the, their, yes. their stocks on other exchanges. American and investors think, can buy stocks in, in London or Shanghai, sure. for that matter. They're already listed on some other exchanges. But there's also a signal element here, too, right. I think, Scott, that, that if they're delisted because of this, uh, it, I think a lot of people are going to assume uh, that there may be a quality problem with their stocks, that you know they were delisted because they're not transparent. And that then inevitably raises the question of, what are you not transparent about? You know, and, and maybe you've got something there that, that we would like to see. It's certainly a big risk for the Chinese to take to get delisted from our stock exchange. Yes, but they've painted it in, in pretty stark sovereignty terms. I mean, they haven't given themselves a lot of leeway here. They've steadfastly resisted uh, efforts to access their, their internal documents. Well, Bill's point is something that's very interesting about the moment we're facing right now in U.S.-China economic relations is it's all black and white. Neither side is is sort of providing some room to maneuver to the other. And there's a lot of bargaining that goes on in international economic relations of all sorts. You know, if you look at the president's statements about uh, his, his tone is somewhat harsher, and certainly China, both with regard to the treatment of other trading partners like Australia, who are U.S. allies, and, and treatment with the, of the United States, it's all very sharp, you know, my way or not, or, you, or, or no way. Uh, and uh, that's going to make it, all these things sharper, more, more difficult to solve. Finally, on China, China is likely going to face U.S. sanctions over Hong Kong and this national security law, according to the White House. What do you guys make of this? It's a little bit like the, the securities issue in the sense that the I mean, U.S. policy and U.S. law on Hong Kong has been very clear. The agreement that the Chinese made with the British when it was handed back in 1998 made, you know, the Chinese made certain promises about respecting the autonomy of, of, of Hong Kong. And U.S. law, which predates that agreement, is premised on, on that autonomy being maintained and they get, a, they get a break. We don't treat them like the rest of China. We don't treat them like the rest of China on tariffs. We don't treat them like the rest of China on export controls. We don't treat them like the rest of China on a host of issues. As long as they're autonomous, it's, I think it's going to be very, very hard if, if the Chinese actually pass the law that they've announced, which is a foregone conclusion. You know, if they pass this law and implement it, I don't see how anybody with a straight face can say, that Hong Kong is still autonomous within the meaning of the, the agreement they struck with the British or within the meaning of our law. Bill's old uh, bureau in the Commerce Department, there's a huge difference between being treated like Hong Kong and being treated like China. Being treated like Hong Kong is like being treated like Canada, essentially, uh, and uh, or any other sort of former British possession. The big benefit would be on export controls. We allow a lot of stuff to go to Hong Kong that we did not allow to go to China. And if we uh, start treating them like China, that would have a significant effect on high-tech exports to Hong Kong. The first casualties of this would, would be uh, in Hong Kong itself, Hong Kong businesses and firms that rely on those transactions. So it's hard to see this, you know, be doing something that benefits the people of Hong Kong. But uh, that's the long story of sanctions anyway. So 
One more thing about China. China and Australia are going at it. Explain what's going on down under and what does this do to our relationship with China? The Aussies are wonderful as an ally, uh, in part because they are every bit as autonomous and willing to push back in the face of pressure. They remind me of us yeah. in that respect. Good surfers, cool guys. No, well, you think you of know, them that the way. Deal, but yeah. then again, you think of Americans, you look at beaches in California, but we also cross, you know, George Washington crossed the Delaware River on, on Christmas Eve and, and, and killed British soldiers in his, their sleep. So we're capable <laughs> of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, and Australians are too. And they've, I think they have, they've had their fill. Uh, with propaganda and uh, with the lack of, particularly in this case, the lack of transparency about the coronavirus. And they drew a line and they're sticking with it, which uh, which I, I appreciate seeing in an ally. So I'm very pro-Australian in this particular situation. Now, they're in a tough spot because they're a major exporter. China is their largest trading partner by far. And they're in this this strange situation where President Trump's quantitative commitments for Chinese purchases, now that demand is down overall because of the virus, allow China to basically do kill two birds with one stone. They can meet the president's demand for more, say, U.S. barley sales, and then they cut off Australia to punish Australia. So we're essentially enabling the uh, harsh treatment of Australian barley. One of those situations nobody expected. We don't grow enough barley to make up the Australian gap. No, no. I mean, there's other people who do, but I mean, they're clearly trying to send a message to the to the Australians. I mean, I, I think Scott's right. I, I, I feel kind of bad for Australia because they, they spent 20 years developing substantial markets with China to the point where they're really economically dependent on that trade relationship. This is going to hurt. Uh, the Chinese know that. But I give the I'm also a fan of the Australians. I give them credit. They 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 did the rational thing. They said there ought to be an, uh, an investigation of COVID-19, uh, where and how it began and what happened. Uh, the Chinese didn't want that, and their the barley case was, I think, very clearly a you know a, a manufactured crisis in order to send a message to the Australians. Uh, they're threatening to do the same thing with with coal. And I guess iron, which would be a much bigger scale than, than barley, although they haven't done that yet. It's also interesting because it has an effect in China. And usually the Chinese are pretty good at, at not doing things that hurt themselves. Most of the barley that goes there is, uh, ends up in beer. You know, it, it goes to, uh, for barley malt and it ends up being brewed. If I were a leader of China, the last thing I'd want in an economic downturn is a beer shortage. Uh, yeah. That's why liquor stores have been essential businesses in the United States. I was, did I tell you, I was driving up the street the other day and my neighbor says to me, you know, the store up the street is now delivering beer and wine. And I said, oh, I didn't know. That's, that's this is good to know. Contactless delivery, yeah. Yeah, I nothing, mean. Nothing like a crisis. Someone I know who is self-declared very knowledgeable about the uh, Chinese beer scene says that most of the beer that people drink is the cheap stuff that sells for about 16 cents a can mm. uh, and does not really involve barley, that barley goes into the high end. If you drink Qingdao, that would be, uh, I think, probably affected by this. Well, it's fantastic. I have to say it's fantastic beer. No, I agree with you. It's, it's uh, one of my favorites. The people that drink that are going to notice price increases would be my guess, uh, unless they can make it up at the Australian Gap, make it up 
from other countries at, at the right price. I mean, for the U.S., it's an opportunity. We, we sell them zero until recently. I mean, one of the things that escaped a lot of notice was the week before the Chinese stuck it to the Australians on barley, they removed the uh, barrier they had to U.S. barley exports. Right. That was a commitment they made in phase one. That was part of the phase one deal. So that goes back several months. But they, you know, they, I think they made the deadline. They removed the commitment. So now our sales are going to go from zero to something. But, you know, the, the barley growers in, in the United States, which I think are mostly in Idaho and Montana and I guess Washington and also I think some in farther east plain states, Dakotas, Minnesota, I think they're going to be cautious because Australia, you know, China has a history of turning this sort of thing on and off. Yes. And it's it's one of the reasons where back when the China deal was announced, Bill and I both uh, felt worst. We thought the ugliest part of the deal were the quantitative measures, the quantitative commitments. What everyone, including the barley farmers in Montana, would prefer are open markets, the ability to trade freely and let the market settle it. In this case, uh, we're using a quantitative commitment the United States supposedly benefited from. China's using it to punish our ally, Australia. Weird days. I think we should do an entire Trade Guys episode on uh, beer and just beer imports, exports. I mean, I would say that we're like an all-American beer podcast. Like, you know, I do love my Michelob Ultra, but... Upon further reflection, my visit to Germany last summer revealed that there is really no better beer than brewed in uh, Bavaria. Look, uh, variety and selection at a wide range of prices is one of the key consumer benefits of trade. Yeah. And we ought to celebrate that. And if any of our listeners have, have expertise in beer, we'd welcome you as a guest. Yeah. One of the great events in my neighborhood some years ago was our, my next door neighbors were Belgian. He worked for the World Bank, and he would take periodic trips back to Belgium. Uh, and one time he took one of these enormous, very large, hard-sided Samsonite suitcases, and he returned with it full of Belgian beer. Mm. And our street had an enormous party. It was great. That sounds like a good event. Gentlemen, thank you, as always, for such wonderful insight. Let's work on the beer episode. There's got to be yeah. you know, someone from the beer industry we can invite. We'll get right on that. All right. We'll talk to Jack, our producer, and uh, we'll get there. Um, gentlemen, have a great week. Great as always seeing you on Zoom. You know, keep the faith. Take care of others. Thank you. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. Thank you, trade guys. You've been listening to the trade guys, a CSIS podcast.